This is episode 89 of The New Disruptors, Nice and Neat with Dan Provost and Tom Gerhardt, permanent archives at newdisrupt.org. This podcast is brought to you this week by 99designs. Have dozens of designers from the over 310,000 that are part of 99designs network submit ideas for your logo, website, t-shirt, car wrap, or other design project. Then pick the best and have a finished professional result in a week or less for a flat price. Our listeners can visit 99designs.com slash disruptors to get a $99 power pack of services for free. Thanks also to our Patreon backers, Ben Wordmuller, Reddy Chi, and Gravity Fish for supporting us directly through Patreon. You can help keep this podcast going for as little as $1 a month. Visit patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash newdisruptors. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that asks if you know the difference between a jigger and a slug. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of The Magazine. Dan Provost and Tom Gerhardt are Studio Neat, a small design and software group that produces nifty products. They began with the Glyph, and when I talked to them last over a year ago, they had launched their second software product and were deep in planning on a new, more complicated item, the Neat Ice Kit, which they funded on Kickstarter a year ago, September, raising $156,000 against a $50,000 goal. They've got another campaign underway already. They're serial Kickstarter entrepreneurs, and we'll talk through the challenges of fulfilling the uh, the ice kit and uh, and their goals of simplicity for this new project. Dan and Tom, thank you for coming back on the show. Uh, yeah, Thanks for having us. us. I feel like I could have you on like every month. I hope you someday you should start your own <laughs> podcast in your spare time. <laughs> if only. Podcast. <laughs> There's just because uh, you guys have. Uh, I mean, you're you go back to the early days. We won't have to. Re- we, so the last podcast, people can tune into that to hear about what you did in the first four years of your lifespan in this cycle. But uh, but you started with the glyph, which was this huge early Kickstarter success, and then you've come back to the well uh, again and again. Is this your sixth camp, fifth campaign now? Right or sixth? Fifth, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's yeah. been it's so you find this format proved an effective mechanism for you to reach your audience and and reach funding, Tom. Yeah, um, it's been great. I mean, I think the more the more we do it, the more we realize that there's all these little benefits besides money that kind of keep us coming back. Um, one of them, I think, a huge one for us is just motivation and kind of encouragement. It's really nice to be developing a product that you either know is going to be for like a certain set of people or after you kind of have funding via Kickstarter, you you have all these people that are kind of waiting for you to produce your thing. And of course, you know, there's like dangers to that. Like if you screw up, there's more people that are disappointed, but um, it provides a lot of motivation for us. And so I think, you know, we see ourselves continuing to use Kickstarter as long as it makes sense. I mean, we don't use it for every product uh, for sure, but uh, for the things that kind of feel right, it it does really feel right. I feel like there's a, a secret that I try to tell as often as I can on this podcast. I've discovered even people who've done successful Kickstarter campaigns are not always aware of this. You can email everyone who backed any campaign you ever did as long as they haven't opted out of that specific campaign, no matter whether it was successful or not. And to me, that's got to be one of those log rolling things. So everybody who backed the glyph and then backed, uh, you know, the, um, like a cosmo, a cosmonaut, cosmonaut, cosmonaut. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everyone who backed the glyph, then back cosmonaut. You've got all those people in every project you do, there's going to be, I know an overlap, but all those people already wanted you to succeed. You delivered something to them and you don't have to separately build a mailing list, which you've also done, but you don't have to separately build a marketing mechanism to reach the people who've already given you money or pledged a project that didn't succeed. Yeah, absolutely. So that that's definitely handy. And so we we don't do that as much. Uh, we did for this new one because it was also in the cocktail uh, world. We we definitely sent an update to our neat ice kit backers. But our strategy has been whenever we send out the survey on Kickstarter to collect everyone's addresses, which is kind of part of the Kickstarter process to fulfill physical rewards. Um, we have a little opt in section where they can be added to our mailing list. So that way we kind of have confirmation that we know they definitely want to be, you know, bugged by us whenever we do something. And so we've been kind of growing our mailing list over the years. That's fantastic. I mean, because this is the interesting thing I've always thought with Kickstarter, it gives you direct access to people, but it's 
often a relatively small number of people. So, um, you know, for instance, the Neat Ice Kit, which did very well, it's 20, almost 2,300 people backed it. And that's not insignificant by any means, but compared to a mass market product, which you hope to sell, say, tens of thousands of, it's a fraction of your audience, but it's the most fervent. So you're asking those people, your fervent people, when, when they're going to the fulfillment process, hey, can we tell you about the next thing? And that's how you've picked up uh, this audience that you can reach for each successive project. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's that's great. I, you know, we had this issue at the magazine where we didn't have a mailing list originally. We were essentially relying entirely on iOS notifications and updates and our, our website, you know, Twitter and so forth. And I started a mailing list. And since we started it so late in the cycle, we picked up relatively few people. But once I did the Kickstarter, I mean, I went from I think there were about 500 people on the list and we went to – uh, we added 400 during the Kickstarter and only about you know 1,500 people backed the Kickstarter, which, again, very happy with the number. But I feel like that – being able to reach people today in kind of the world of Facebook grabbing attention, among other things, yeah. like it seems like you have to have lots of different approaches. So your mailing list has been effective. Do you have other ways that you're marketing to find these people who already – I mean as opposed to marketing for a, a specific product like the Neat Ice Kit – there's going to be a, an audience for that that is outside of people who know you. But for the people who know you, your most um, like loyal or interested supporters who like the stuff you do, is the mailing list the primary mechanism for that, or do you have other ways of reaching them as well? Yeah, I would. The mailing list is definitely primary, and uh, every time we launch something new, we kind of have this checklist that we just go down. So the mailing list is the big one and the most important one, and then there's you know our our Twitter account, and we have like a Facebook page as well, and then our like personal Twitter accounts as well. It's kind of obvious, um, but then other than that, that's pretty much it. And then from there, it's kind of like marketing in terms of like emailing people individually we might think be interested and things like that uh that's pretty much it that's good when it works and it's worked for you which is so it's the you're, you're it's sort of a, i don't know if it's confirmation bias it's like if what you're trying to do works and you do it again and again and it continues to work and you refine it then you should probably just keep doing that i guess yeah yeah i mean i think we we, I think we're always looking for opportunities to be better at that. And um, for, I mean, for us, we, we totally um, cannot underestimate enough, or sorry, overestimate the value in being able to directly talk to people who, you know, have supported us in the past. And so, you know, if there was some new thing that came out that's fancier than email, uh, we would totally use it. But email, you know, it's pretty good. It works. And Facebook has not been a big thing for you guys, right? Do you have a? I assume you have a Facebook page just because everyone has a Facebook page. Yeah, I mean, we we set one up just because it seemed like something we we're supposed to do. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we have we have like I don't know two thousand fans. I think they're called fans. I forget what the nomenclature is, but uh, yeah. So we, you know, anytime we kind of tweet an announcement, I'll, I'll also simultaneously, you know, basically copy and paste the same thing onto the Facebook page. But yeah, it doesn't, it honestly doesn't get too much love and attention. Well, and I realize, I mean, this is the thing, I think the, there's a lot of interesting things about what you guys have done. I mean, I, I excite you all the time because you're, what you're doing is got value. It has inherent value and quality, clearly, the way you approach products and, and the quality of what you do. Um, you manage to launch yourself at a point when it was, I think, easier to get attention, but it wasn't with something that was unwarranted. So you're both like a, a special case, but also a general case at the same time. Like, here's <laughs> what you could do, but how do you achieve the same kind of attention these guys did when there was less noise out there, when there were fewer Kickstarter campaigns, when no one had made, uh, you know, you introduced essentially a category of, uh, you know, iPhone as a, as a camera style things. And now there are competitors, there's lots of other stuff. And, and iPhone, I mean, you could get cases then, but not anything quite like this. So having introduced categories of goods and having launched yourself in this way, do you think there's still opportunities for other people to find these niches and get involved now? Can other people duplicate? I mean, not your precise success, but can other people come out with kind of a, not a blockbuster product, but the thing that launches them into a, a career like this? So, uh, certainly, certainly. I, I think, you know, it's funny. We had a, you know, big head start. I mean, I totally agree that, you know, there was, we were very fortunate timing wise, but I think, you know, if you have a product that resonates with people and is valuable, I think it's even easier now to, um, you know, the attention there is more split for sure, but 
you know, people understand value and now it's easier to get funding on Kickstarter and there's a larger audience there and it's become kind of more of an accepted way to go. So I think if you have a valuable product idea and you honestly need some help and there's like a salient reason why you're asking for help, I don't see why, you know, it's any more difficult um, besides, you know, kind of typical stuff like competition, but that has always existed, right? So I think, you know, the environment in terms of consumers willing to back a Kickstarter is way better. Um, there's, there is a lot more noise out there, but I think the, the cream rises to the top. <laughs> oh, that's good. I mean, because that's been the problem on the App Store, which you guys have uh, two items in Apple's App Store, too, is that there's so much noise. I talked to Garrett Murray in a recent episode of the podcast, and we talked a lot about sort of the, the inability to surface stuff there because there aren't good tools. And Kickstarter, I mean, I don't. I hate to focus on them all the time, but I think for a very specific kind of thing, when you're trying to launch something, uh, they're just a really great place to start because they help surface stuff in a lot of different ways. And you can get featured by them, but just I think even the way in which products that are interesting get pushed out, they have their mailing list, they have sort of informal mailing list that just sort of lists links and a more formal one that promotes products. They have picks, they track acceleration. There's just a lot of ways in which people can discover stuff there. That's hard. I think in almost any other way in which you present something for, you know, prospective sale or actual sale when you're a little guy. Certainly. I mean, when we've launched apps on the app store, it feels, we definitely do not assume we're going to get featured by Apple. And it basically feels like it's completely up to us. And the App Store is just a hindrance in terms, unless they feature us. But in terms of their discovery, it's just like, you know, worse than Google. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, it, it does definitely feel very different. Kickstarter really feels like they're on your side. And it doesn't feel that way with the App Store, unfortunately. Yeah. And um, so you tapped into this really, uh, I think, a very interesting vein is tap, tapping a vein. I guess it's more like uh, <laughs> minerals than ice, but uh, there's a lot of interest in uh, that's come up in the last few years in artisanal ice and artisanal drinks. And like, the, like people keep trying to, I think in a really good way, reclaim stuff from the past and put a modern twist on it. Like do things that are more efficient or clever, but fun. And, uh, and ice seems really surprising to me. We, we ran an article I, and I had to be sold this idea. We ran an article in the magazine about artisanal ice making in Portland, of course, Portland, Oregon, and, uh, the home of everything artisanal and interesting. And, um, I thought at first it was a little bit of a goof and the writer is a really solid person and, and she's a, I've been a reporter for years in that city, and uh, I think the piece was great. It was talking about both like how bars were getting into this and carving ice and individuals, and there's people writing blogs about how simple ways to make clear ice and interesting ice, and, and so it became a whole thing. And it's in fact uh, the, the it's in the book, the uh, magazine book has a has the article in it um, that we put out, and because I think it was. It seemed improbable. People were like, are you pulling my leg? Like, no. So there's this, this – I don't want to say an industry exactly, but there's tons of interest around it. So a year ago into that, this was the, the thing you wanted to get into next, that you felt you could bring something new to. So what were the objectives you had? You guys always have design and sort of – I want to say personal objectives with projects as well as having a consumer-facing um, like marketing idea, like here's what we want to sell to people. What, what were the objectives going into Neat Ice Kit? Well, uh, first, we'd, we have to give you credit and thank you for including that article in your editorial uh, genius in the magazine, because that's really what I think got us thinking about clear ice more. Oh uh, we, we, we had encountered it uh, some, but it was like, you know, this is really cool. And that's kind of, I think, what started us down this path. So, oh my so God. thanks. I, know, I had no idea. Now I'm very, I'll tell, I'll tell the writer, she'll be very pleased. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's true. I was in uh, L.A. a few months ago. I mean, you know, I, don't, I have kids. I'm not, out of, I'm not out of bars as much as I never really was as, when I was younger. But, like, you know, and I go everywhere I go now. So I went to L.A. was the first place I saw this. And I know, you know, I go out now. Everyone has their signature ice. It's like a thing now that, that clear ice, uh, you know, has a purpose. So I'm sorry. But so, so you, you spotted this and thought this is something we want to get into, clear ice. Well, it, you know, it wasn't exactly that. Uh, we typically – I just for all, for all of our products, it's really like, is it cool to us and do we want it? It's kind yeah. of, you know, if it doesn't pass that test, we don't do it. But I think it just seemed cool to us. And we were just bummed that you couldn't do that at home. Uh, that was basically it. Um, and then after some experimentation, we were like, you know, this works. And I think, you know, Dan and I uh, were kind of on the lookout for cocktail-related opportunities because we just were into cocktails like, you know, a year and a half ago, we just started like thinking about them a lot and, and making them a lot. Um, and so we were thinking, Oh, we should do a cocktail product. And we're kind of looking around for an opportunity. 
Um, and that just really sparked our interest in, in fit for us. Um, and, you know, I think at the end of the day, it's just we really like cocktails right now. And they're, they're fun and they're really fun to do at home. And there's like plenty of little frictions that um, are kind of a pain. And so that's really how we're approaching it. I mean, it's also interesting for us moving from this kind of tech uh, oriented products to more like lifestyle products and like kind of gift oriented products. So that's an interesting change for us. That's fun. Um, but in general, it really is about kind of making tools or making things that enable people to, to do stuff at the end of the day. God, I wish you guys would focus next on, uh, grinders and shavers that are <laughs> easy to clean. That would be a great thing. The microplane is not enough. Yeah. Uh, but but I see what you mean, though. It's right. Is This is like people were interested as, as there's – I mean, it's not like a cocktail culture, but I think there was like – there's definitely been a rise in interest all over the place, especially in what you're talking about specifically, like happened to you guys, is you want to make fancy, interesting drinks at home because it's fun. They taste good. And uh, I, there was this issue about like why did – say like uh, uh, Pabst Blue Ribbon and, and certain kinds of like American domestic beers, why did they go on the rise? Like, well, the economy collapsed and people embraced stuff that was cheaper and bars did too because they were trying to sell stuff. So people went down one path and then the cocktail thing, like cocktails, you go out and you could spend, well, you uh, want to use in New York. So you, know, you could spend anything from <laughs> probably 11 to $25 on a, on a cocktail. And in Seattle, it's probably like you know, a little bit lower range, but you know, it's probably a dollar fifty worth of alcohol and goods if at home, if that. Um, so there's an interest in, in having the kind of bar experience, but being able to do it in your house too. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's something really cozy about it. I don't know. It's good. Yeah. So, but, so with this in mind, um, this is the most complicated thing you guys have made. And the glyph was a form follows function kind of thing. If I might say in the idea that you need something that fit an iPhone and attached to a tripod. So you had two very tight constraints and you had to work within them. This, you could make anything, you could make anything. So how did you come up with this specific design approach? How many, how much did you prototype and how many roads did you go down in, in sorting this out? Let me tell you, Glenn. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually, I have a real just personal fondness for the neat ice kit because it's, to me, it's a real testament to the design process where we just started with this vague notion of making clear ice at home and just kept iterating until we got to the neat ice kit. So that was not, you know, we didn't say like, Hey, wouldn't it be cool if you had a set of tools where you could chisel this brick of ice and get a clear cube and another cloudy half you could put in a shaker like that. That's not where it started. And so, yeah, we, we, we made really crude prototypes with, you know, just stuff, you know, foam we had lying around the house and we ordered stuff and, uh, our wives were saying our freezers look like science experiments with all the, you know, duct taped prototypes oh and stuff God. we had in there. But yeah, we just kept working and kept iterating and there were a lot of dead ends and there were some sad moments when we thought we had, you know, gotten to a point of no return where there, you know, we, we couldn't, you know, get over the hurdle and oh, then yeah. kind of had a breakthrough at, at one point where it was, you know, this whole time we were just trying to make clear ice like a just like a pure thing and we, we had a breakthrough when we realized the, the problem isn't necessarily clear ice but separating the clear ice from the non-clear portion and when mm. we kind of started approaching it that way then that's uh when the the neat ice kit kind of started to to become something Oh, yeah. Awesome. I, and I think actually one thing that's, I, I was really surprising for me or a real lesson about that is, um, like Dan was saying, we were really dejected because we were kind of hitting this technical problem. Uh, you know, at first we were like, we want to make basically a silicone ice tray that makes clear ice. Right. Um, and we were hitting this technical wall. Um, but then we kind of did some really wild exploration and what ended up happening was basically the story of the entire product changed. And by us changing the story of the product, uh, we kind of let ourselves, like we, we then were able to solve the design problem. So it was really interesting for us because we spent, you know, three months in this certain frame of what the product should be. Uh, but then when we kind of stepped back and let ourselves kind of, you know, be more free, that frame of reference changed about what the product was and like what the story could be. And it, you know, ended up being a much better thing. Um, so for me, that was a real lesson that it's, it's really worthwhile 
to explore and let yourself go really horizontal um, and do some crazy stuff uh, because you never know kind of what will pop out. So. Oh, I see. So your first story was uh, how do we create clear ice so that we do something probably involving silicon where people pop it out and the entire cube is clear. But the story shifted to – what did it shift to? It shifted to uh, now it's a kit that helps you make, A, any kind of ice mm. for cocktails. Mm-hmm. And it became about a process. So it's not like now the objects and tools we're giving you are tools you use for a process. And we weren't like, oh, that would be really cool. We ended up doing the process. Like one of these days or one of the times I like – we like held up a knife and like split the brick of ice. (laughs) And we're like, oh, that's really fun. Uh Like that is great. Um, And so – that is really what it became about, like this process all of a sudden. It's not just about some silly ice mold, right? It's about this process. Oh, I see. You do. So you created – I see because you had you had a story, but it was a very simple story. It was an ice yeah, tray, exactly. essentially kind of a fancy ice tray. And, and we can talk about some of the competitors before and after um, doing yep. – that are more than that. And you turned it into like a narrative, like it's an arc. Like you, yep. there's multiple steps and it's for people who enjoy – this is like people who enjoy using a typewriter or – Exactly. Um, you know, or it can be a modern digital camera, but they enjoy setting it up and setting the lighting and whatever. It doesn't have to be an analog process. But the, the people get their hands on this thing, and that's your story: is that you take it and you you you're you're creating, you're taking. <laughs> it is it's wonderful too. You're taking water. You're doing a phase change. <laughs> then you're then you're you know taking it out of the freezer, and then you're doing more transformation to it. And so it's it's like chopping wood as opposed to like ah, I put some yeah. ice in the freezer. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so, and we just enjoy that. It's really fun. And so that's for us what convinced us to do this. I mean, even if we had made a ice mold that made perfectly clear cubes of ice, um, we could have easily still not made this product, even if, because we solved that like technical challenge mm-hmm. because the, the story wasn't there. Um, but with this kind of process and like a whole ice kit, it really clicked for us. Let's pause for a moment so I can tell you about 99designs, which is this week's sponsor. And if you listen to the end of this message, there's a special offer for New Disruptors listeners. You know, as well as I do, probably how hard it is to get something designed professionally. It's not that there aren't a ton of graphic designers out there who can do the work. It's hard to find the people you want who can do the work at the price you can afford for the scale of project and can deliver on a fast schedule. Most of what we need, we need fast and now. When you're working on a bigger project, you can go out and contract for things, that's fine. But if you need a new logo, a t-shirt, some kind of design that's got a finite scope to it, being able to get it done fast and reliably is important. And that's what 99designs offers. That's the basis of their business. You go to them and you sketch out the nature of your project. Do you need a t-shirt, a logo, a website design, a car wrap, a book cover, whatever you need, you go there, you specify what you want, and then designers from their network of over 310,000 professionals worldwide will offer sketches and ideas. You get a pick from the best of those and then work to refine that with the designer. Within a week, you'll have your results. Sometimes it's even faster. Because you're working through 99designs, you don't have to negotiate a rate. That's already set ahead of time. You you know what you're going to pay, and you know how you're going to pay it. 99designs backs up its work. So not only is it fast and affordable, professional, and high quality, there's a 100% money-back guarantee. So even if the final design you get, it's not what you need. You don't feel like the results are what you want. Boom, 100% money-back guarantee. But their process ensures that you're going to find something you like because you're going to have dozens of people competing for your work. It won't just be one person you find and then you have to go to the next. This is a great way to narrow down. 99designs removes the friction. They make this process seamless. They create a marketplace in which you can get a consistent result and the designers get work that they wouldn't have found otherwise. Everybody wins, which is exactly the kind of disruption I like and like to talk about on this show. So, how do you get started with this? You go to 99designs.com slash disruptors. That's numeral 9. Numeral 9. Designs.com slash disruptors. And you'll get a $99 power pack of services at no cost today. And give this new way of getting design done consistently, fast, and reliably a chance. And now back to the podcast. Let's talk about how crazy this project is, okay? Because I love you guys, and I've talked to you so much over the years, and I know how 
well you plan things and think through things. But you have <laughs> – you made a foam piece. That's two pieces of foam. There's a silicate insert. There's a precision piece of metal with the sharp edge. There's a muddler, which has two kinds of materials on it. And there's a canvas bag that's sewn. So this is a lot to take on. Did you think you were completely insane when you started – you go, all right, we're, we're, this is a lot to bite off. Or do you say, like, no, no, we've done this. We've gone through the process. All of these are reducible to things we know how we can do. I mean, we, we, how much of a leap did you feel like you were taking when you went into this multiple material and multiple process project? I yeah, that's it's definitely our most uh, complex thing we've done. Um, I felt pretty good about it because each individual piece didn't seem that complex on its own. So yes, it was a lot of things at once, but they could kind of be siloed and we could deal with them individually. Oh, so you didn't have gating fact. Most things didn't have gating. Like we have to do a process of 10 things in a row. It was, you have four, five different things to make or four different things. Five right. Things to make. Yeah. More or less. Um, so, so that made me feel like pretty good about it. And, you know, prior to the Kickstarter, we, we, you know, had talked to manufacturers and had some quotes and such. So we were feeling pretty good. Um, and everything went smoothly except for a couple things. Uh, Tom, if you, you can probably better elaborate yeah. on this. Yeah. So I, I just actually looked while we were talking here at our, uh, quote unquote skew tree that just has all of the parts listed out. And there are 16 parts to the meat ice 16 kit. 16 parts. Yeah. Including packaging. So oh, it's funny because there's probably more parts to the packaging than there is of the things. And, you know, for us, Sometimes those packaging parts are just as hard as the other parts. It just depends. Um, so, yeah, so it's it's crazy. I think we had all of the parts sitting in a warehouse by December of last year, mm-hmm. except for the foam and the blades. Oh, my gosh. Okay. And so we thought, oh, man, we're, we're going to launch this so early. We're going to be, like, winners. It's going to be great. But we ended up being, like, two months late, right? Uh um, and so what I think the thing that happened was both of those parts were the parts that we ended up sourcing from China. Uh, so it is difficult. The communication there is difficult. Um, so that kind of took longer. But the real big one that really held us up was that foam part. And um, that is a real lesson in how... You can do as much planning as you want and have as much experience as you can possibly have. But at the end of the day, when you're manufacturing a product at scale, things happen and you just can never anticipate them. Um, now, was something like the glyph – I know you went through different stuff with the Cosmonaut. Was something like the glyph – I mean that was the simplest thing you started with and you were able to do 3D prototypes. It was kind of a hard plastic item and the final thing was actually – pretty close to your original prototype, right? You needed to tweak it a little bit, but it was a, a single item with a, a brass um, insert, uh, the screw, not what's the boss, the boss. You know, put yes, it. the boss. Yeah. But that didn't vary as much, right? I mean, you had a, that was a more straightforward process between uh, 3D rendering, uh, 3D printing, and final production, right? Well, it's funny. Uh, so yes, that, so definitely in between like prototype and uh, production prototype, there's a huge gulf mm-hmm. in the design intent and, and what you can do. But uh, but for us, I'm talking about in between production prototype and full on production. So let oh, me explain. It's okay. a little technical, but mm-hmm. so um, we had production prototypes for this foam piece in November of last year. So like that means the company that was going to make it made one. Uh, we signed off on the sample. It was the right material. It was the right everything, right? Then soon as they made the rest of the like eight molds that they had to make and they started going into full production, um, there started being issues of quality control that came up and where they started out saying that they could make, you know, 120 of these a day. Uh, they ended up being able to make 30 a day. Oh, my gosh. And the 30 that they made a day weren't of the highest quality. There were problems. And so they spent the next couple months refining the process and tweaking the molds to get it to where it met our, the, 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 the parts made, met our quality standards. So, you know, even though we had a production prototype that we signed off of, you know, everything was fine. The change between making one or ten of something and a thousand of something, even if it's the same process, 
things just change, especially with quality control and especially with like this type of material. So it's just one of those things where it's like, we did as much planning. We were early on having an approved sample, but you just don't know what's going to happen. Even the manufacturer, right, who does this all day, didn't know that was going to happen. So it's just, uh, you know, it's just one of those things. It's tricky. So part of the issue is that the um, the foam shows flaws really readily, right? So any exactly, yeah. So you've got a, if you you're, you were aiming for a perfect exterior, the manufacturer said we can deliver you a perfect exterior, and here in fact is a production prototype of a perfect exterior and you go great just do that uh, 1200 times or yeah. 5000 times and they said we can do that so it wasn't that you were asking for it wasn't uh like i mean the the, uh, the apple had their famous thing with the uh, the cube and they've had some other ones since and they produce on massive volumes i don't know i think there'll only be hundreds of thousands of the of the g4 cube ever made but they uh had this they had cracks in the plastic and it because the specific design showed them so well like anything else if they decided mm-hmm. the cube was going to be made of black plastic or they were going to paint it afterwards or whatever you would never have known but because they were highlighting the sort of intricacies of the manufacturing process the clarity of it i think apple was trying to prove something in that design and they were pushing materials limits apple often pushes uh, the limits of manufacturing processes in this case you weren't trying to push the edge you got something that looked like what you wanted right yeah, we did uh, at first. But, you know, I think, you know, for us, I think the reason why it was uh, particularly difficult is just the geometry. Most foam is typically not molded at near at that type of geometry. So that was a challenge for the manufacturers. And, you know, I mean, it's difficult. Uh, and, yeah, you just never know going in, you know, what your design is going to mean for the production going on. Even, you know, the manufacturers just take guesses, but they don't know. So it is, you know, I, Dan and I could have easily... Uh, you know, decided four months ago, okay, this is good enough. Let's just push it out the door. But we also know that if you just kind of stick to it and fight through these battles, uh, usually you'll kind of arrive at something a lot better. So that's what we decided to do. And I mean, it, we ended up delivering a couple months late, but we're at a much better place uh, and the product is a lot better. So, you know, it's it's one of those things. And, you know, and honestly, you know, we're continuing to work on that uh that on that process, manufacturing process, and I think that will continue for some time. Um, so it's kind of a, a moving target, but uh, it's it's definitely worth it in the end. But it is super frustrating. <laughs> well, I also, I mean, God, I've talked a lot. Um, whenever I talk to anybody about products on this podcast, we always China comes up as, and sometimes other countries now too, come up as a as an issue in both positive and negative. I had this great conversation last year with Bunny Huang, who lives in Singapore now, and he frequently goes to China. He just took. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes to this. He just took MIT Media Lab, who's headed by Joy Ito now, went to China and Bunny gave them a tour. He brought it was a few, some very interesting people associated with the lab. And he took them around some of the fantastic places in Shenzhen where you can buy like sheets of of CPUs and just like it's it's like William Gibson except a thousand times bigger and it's real. And, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and he talked about going into these shops. Uh, people should listen to this podcast if they're interested in the Chinese manufacturing process at all. About you know he because he's over there, he goes from Singapore, he flies up, he goes to Shenzhen, and he walks in, and there's like this little shop on the side. These guys buy one piece of equipment. If they get enough volume, they buy another. And there's this handwork, and if they reach a certain scale, it goes from handwork to more machinery. And the amount of subcontracting that goes out is astonishing. And um, so not being there has got to be frustrating. But I can also see from the manufacturer standpoint. God, I could imagine being in their shoes and going like, oh, blank. Like, we committed yeah. to this. We gave them a price and, oh, we just lost our margin. How, how was that working with the group that you worked with? How did they respond when they could not meet the quality that they – in the, the finish that they promised um, to you? Because, I mean, there's sometimes a reputation that Chinese companies uh, – or Chinese outsourcers are like, I don't know, they're not interested in quality, but that there's – there's like this, well, you can't get what you want. Like, and I hear the reverse. I hear, I mean, there are people like that. And then there's this intense devotion to craft as well, that they're trying to produce something that is the highest quality at the right price, no matter what the scale is. What, what was your experience with your supplier going through this? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was tricky. Uh, we were fortunate in that we had a Canadian liaison uh, that lives in China and basically this is his job is uh, facilitating relationships with uh, (laughs) uh, manufacturers and designers or other companies. Um, So, and he approached us if I'm not mistaken, right, Tom? Yeah. He, he reached out to us um, 
And so that that was a godsend because we we did the we originally did the blade uh manufacturer by ourselves and that was basically just Tom kind of emailing back and forth in broken English um and that that has its own story attached to it but uh that was a real pain so uh it was really great to to have this guy uh help us out and so that definitely made things easier but even with that uh it, you know there were there are some difficulties in the communication. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's, it is a real rock and a hard place uh, it, it, when, you know, the manufacturer kind of promises you a price, but you know that they're losing money um, and you know you want to have them as a manufacturing partner going forward, right? Yeah. It's about a, re- a relationship. So, um, you know, it's, it's really difficult. Uh, I, it, in our experience, it is true that the Chinese companies we work with do care about quality. Um, but I think sometimes they get overzealous on the sales side of things where, you know, they promise too much up front. Um, so, you know, I, it ended up being just a negotiation with them basically. So, you know, they kind of honored their price for some of the parts and we worked with them, uh, you know, and kind of upped the part price going forward. Um, and so, you know, it's just kind of one of those things where it's a negotiation technically, they have to honor the price, but on the other hand, you don't want them to be mad at you because, you know, it'll work out better. So, you know, it's just one of those things where you just have to just, that's what's nice about being t- just Tom and Dan and just the two of us <laughs> is we can just, you know, sit on like Skype or something and video chat and just like, like shake our heads and just figure out what we're going to do, you know, <laughs> but it is, you know, it's just the lumps you have to take sometimes. Well, and I understand it's a scaling issue too, is right. You had X thousand that you needed to fulfill uh, during this stage for the Kickstarter campaign. And then, you know, hopefully if all goes well, you're going to scale up to some thousands of more or have, or even if it's a consistent set of sales and you're selling a few thousand a month, whatever it is, these guys have perfected the process you need. If you, if you can't preserve the relationship with them, You'd have to start over with somebody else, which sounds horrible. And they might do their research and go, okay, we need to charge four times as much because we see what you went through with this other process and we think it's going to be just as hard. Yeah, exa- exactly. I mean, that's exactly, that's exactly what it is, so right? Better you to never work know. Yeah. So <laughs> better to work through with them than, uh, than, uh, ever. yeah. This, this is the thing too. So now for, you know, I haven't priced out manufacturer like this, but when I was pricing the book for the magazine, I've never had anything printed overseas. And a lot of people I know have, and then they've passed. It used to be Italy. It used to be that, uh, there was, there was a story when I was back in college. It was like there was a certain kind of blue you can get in Italy because they don't have environmental <laughs> regulations about burning off the impurities. So you go there and there are people that go, oh, I'm doing a press check in Italy. They go over for a couple of weeks. They walk for their pensione and check pages and go, you know, then drink wine all night. And uh, it sounds lovely. But uh, but more, more realistically today, there's still a labor and cost differential uh, and – uh, at some point, I think when I was doing the magazine book, I really wanted to print it in America, not as a Shop America thing, but I wanted to have the control and the conversation. And I had a short time frame. In the end, it was invaluable. And you know, shipping took longer for reasons beyond both the printer and, and my control. I mean, Am- you know, the, the vagaries of Amazon being involved in your shipping chain as a as a fulfillment <laughs> creator. Our boxes <laughs> sat on a warehouse dock for ten days for no particular reason because they were. Overloaded with something else, but uh, huh. I think I want to say the hard cost for each hardcover book we did was about eight fifty or nine dollars before shipping and freight and all that. Um, and I think I would have paid half as much in China. But the thing I was worried about is a lot of the stuff you guys talk about is if there's a quality. I mean, especially with the book where they're going to be like, okay, here's the proofs, and now we're going to go print it, and no one is going to be on press except yep. the printer, and then boxes are going to wind up, you know, two, three months later off a ship, and if I don't like it, I don't know what I do. I don't know what I do at that point. So I felt the price differential um, was worth it because I don't have representatives in China. It seems fantastic that you had someone there who could be on site as, as your interface. Yeah, it's, I mean, completely invaluable, and I think because – it worked out reasonably well, uh, you know, with these couple parts that we had made in China. I think we're we're definitely moving towards investigating that more, but definitely with a tenuous kind of slow uh, step towards that because, you know, we have definitely reaped the benefits of all that stuff you're talking about. You know, having local producers that we can talk to, that we can keep an eye on in terms of quality control. Um, and so, yeah, it's really difficult. And, and you know, the timing and shipping is incredibly expensive i think because we were rushing and we wanted to get these uh foam parts 
um, fulfilled as soon as we could. We shipped them air from China to here. And I think it ended up costing about $2.50 per part just for the shipping. Yeah. So it's crazy expensive. So, I mean, on a boat, it's way cheaper, but still. It's, but you don't know, you know when it goes on the boat. Is I, You know, my friend Dean Putney did a, a really wonderful book based on his great-grandfather's uh, World War One photos <laughs> in Germany, on, like, in the trenches of World War One, And uh, he had it printed in China, and everything was fantastic until the last thing, which was I think they'd promised him four or six weeks of shipping, and then it became 12. And that mm-hmm. was just it. And so the book arrived in, I think, February or something instead of December. And there's just nothing you can do at that point. But the pri- everything else was right. He and he had, you know, he wasn't. I don't think he was. He wasn't really promising people end of the year. But um, but that becomes that becomes an issue, uh, especially when your most loyal people who've come on early. You want to reward them the most. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's tricky. I know that this is the the thing about like Alibaba, which is I think they're about to go IPO. Right. There's a right yeah. as we talk, and they're worth. I don't know, it's a trillion dollars, some huge amount of money. It's a huge <laughs> yeah. marketplace and it's lots of different things. But, you know, you can go on Alibaba and you could say, okay, I need someone to make a foam thing and you could find them and you can negotiate with it. But it's uh, – and they have, you know, reputation markers and it's in Alibaba's best interest to facilitate all this. But it's still – it's very blind and like it's not that – I mean you guys had the glyph made in – was it North Dakota? Is that right? Uh, South Dakota. South Dakota. Yeah. I shouldn't. Uh, no, I hope there's no North Dakota listeners. Don't mix up the Dakotas. <laughs> so, the South Dakota. So you were able to go to the plant, as I recall. To uh, exactly. It, but that's it's still it's kind of distance. You were both in New York at the time, so you took a trip to South Dakota, uh, partly I'm sure for academic interest and partly for for seeing it. But uh, there's that that gap is still there. The, the other thing that um, that's interesting to me is like we we've talked a bit. I think in our last last time we talked too about, and I talk about this a lot, is like when does that gap happen where um, 3D printing becomes realistically a way to do uh, higher volumes? And we're nowhere, I don't think we're anywhere near there yet, but I know that's going to happen. I watched it happen with print-on-demand, and it's it's ratcheting up there between print-on-demand versus offset printing for quality and, and so forth. So foam is a really particular thing. Like you, like I said, you had all these different <laughs> – and everything yeah. went well. It was great. But that, I mean, it's actually – you have an awesome track record that given the number of different parts you had, that it went as well as it did, right? Because you only had problem with one particular thing, thing really, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, we're – I. I think we came out of it pretty – or definitely satisfied and, you know, happy that we made it that complex. Uh, but, yeah, def- it, it's just a lot to manage, you know, in shipping and coordinating all of it. It just ends up being feeling like you're doing logistics. It, it feels like we did all the design work literally a year ago and it's been logistics for a year. Like – Straight, oh, right? God, I know. Well, I spent. I did. The, we had the, the book was done in February, and I think I spent two solid months dealing with um, sometimes hours every day dealing with getting stuff in the right place. And that's yep. for a book. I mean, books are books or fungible items. They're easy to move around. And, and it was that. But, you know, what I want to get into is the foam thing. Is, and you guys now have done a lot more material analysis and, and have worked now. This is fantastic. As a project for personal development and professional development, this must be amazing to now have the the creator maker side knowledge of all of these different kinds of wood, metal, foam, uh, you know, <laughs> you've done some of that before, packaging material and so forth, the silicon, um, silicone rather. But uh, the the thing I wonder is some of what you made have to be made by traditional processes still. And if there's an inflection point that you've seen or when you're investigating, like foam, you would think, oh, well, foam should be easy, right? But it's it's a high – it requires special skills, dyes, specialized equipment, specialized materials. That's not something – you can't set up a foam-making factory no, of your own. If you, if you were suddenly, okay, we're going to make 150,000 of these a year, that's still nowhere near a scale for you folks to be able to do it in-house, right? No, it's a lot of labor. Uh, I think each one of the foam parts takes five minutes to make, like to cure kind of. Yeah. So not only is it that, it's just, and then they have to go through the uh, an oven to heat up the mold. Yeah, it's a huge process. The uh, It's a really long, huge process. I think, in fact, if I look at almost everything that you're doing in this, almost none of it, you, none of it would make sense to bring in house. Like making the chisel, for instance. I mean, that's a traditional. I assume that's a very traditional process that was used to stamp well, out metal. Oh, tell me how the chisel was you'd, made. You'd think. How was uh, so, it? <laughs> I want to hear about that. Then. I mean, so I always mention how it's made. The TV show, and they show a lot of stamping stuff out of metal and the process of taking a piece of metal and refining it. So, how was this made, if not that way? 
Yeah. So, um, yeah, stamping metal and even laser cutting metal is, is, is something you could do in house. Um, mm-hmm. but what is really difficult is making a hardened blade yes. that is flat. So oh. ba- basically, uh, you know, the blades are kind of hardened in this special way where they heat up the blade mm-hmm. and then they put it in oil really fast to cool it down. It's called quenching. Yeah. Um, and it hardens the blade, but being able to quench a blade that is thin like that out of hard steel and have it stay flat mm-hmm. is really is a real specialized process and skill. So um, we could make a blade that's like okay in-house, but not a really good one. And so, yeah, it's, you know, it's just one of those things where you can get 80% of the way pretty easily, but the last 10 or 20% is, is really hard. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's I think that's maybe, I don't want to say it's misleading. And I know that there are 3D printers that let you print things for metal now and there's circuit, yeah, circuit yeah. board printers and whatever but it seems like some material attributes including strength and flexibility and durability are really going to be difficult to achieve maybe ever i don't know i mean when you talk yeah, about quenching that changes the actual like crystalline structure of the metal right that's the whole exactly. point <laughs> yeah I, I you know i could see us um well, I think where 3D, where like rapid manufacturing and like 3D printing is, is really coming into its own is, um, there's this company called, um, Proto Labs and they have a sub company called Proto Mold, but they do, you know, we could send them a 3D model and they could give a, get us like injection molded parts in like a week or two weeks. And it's because they have this set up, this process set up to make the mold really quickly and do all this testing. And I think, and they use 3D printing to do that sometimes. And so I think, um, where 3D printing is going to really impact manufacturing is just helping the tooling process and uh, helping yeah. uh, kind of get up and running faster. And definitely, you know, obviously CNC machining has like done that in the past 20, 30 years. But yeah, in terms of materiality, 3D printing is just not there. Uh, it, it just does not have the physical properties that, you know, you really want if you're making a nice thing. Um, and, and I think it's going to be a long time before we get there. However, there are plenty of products in our lives that don't need to be, that don't need to have awesome physical properties or like mechanical properties. And so I could see us even designing some little small plastic bits that are just really cool little objects that we could 3D print. Like I could mm-hmm. see us doing that today, right? And selling them. So it's, I think it will get there for some things, but for like, you know, a blade or like foam, I mean, that's just like way off. But I think there's a, it seems like there's a, uh, there's a differential in price or like an amplifying effect that makes sense when you talk about it that way, because it used to be very difficult to make molds. It's still difficult to make molds, but there's all those, I mean, it's funny, like, uh, I've read this book. I think we talked about it a year ago. I should put it in the show notes. It's, uh, I'll have to find the name of it again, but it's just about every manufacturing process and it, in some cases, there are so many steps to make before you make the final thing because you have to make a one kind of thing and then you make a reverse of that and you make a, you know, it used to be in the days when they, with metal type, like you'd carve a punch and the punch would make a matrix and you'd pour lead into the matrix and then you'd have the type and then the type would wear out and the matrices wear out and the punches. But each step of it, you could put a lot of time into making the punch because the punch could make, you know, X thousands of matrices before it wore down and so forth. And that multiplying effect still remains there. If you could 3D print a mold instead of using an old process to make it or to model it by hand or whatever, then maybe you've taken out 10 or 20% of the setup cost uh, and and also reduced the amount of time that's required and increased the precision. And that seems like a magnificent thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, for us, it's always a battle of what is the overhead to produce this part. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is literally always the battle. And, you know, for something like injection molding, those costs are coming down. But if you look at like, say, metal injection molding, where like literally your injection molding, you're molding metal, uh, those, that's still a process that's like out of reach. Like it's like hundreds of thousands of parts at minimum for you to, for you to be able to kind of make that work. So that is always the question for us. Whenever we see a manufacturing process is, you know, what is the kind of overhead, like minimum setup cost for this? Because a lot of times that is almost all of the cost. <laughs> like if you go to, you, you know, Glenn, like if you go to the, the printer, uh, you know, you design, they set up the machine, it runs for like 30 minutes and it prints your 10,000 prints, <laughs> exactly. right? So literally all of the cost is them setting up the machine. Uh, so yeah, that's what the real promise of, you know, just-in-time manufacturing, 3D printing is. And definitely with CNC manufacturing is it's just, you know, I can make 10 of these and it's the same cost as making a thousand basically. And that is, that is an amazing uh, possibility.
I love that. And so without getting too much in, since you're a privately held, a, a small, uh, <laughs> closely held company, according to Supreme Court rules, uh, privately held firm, did, when you're planning this, you guys think about scale because you know about scale. We're just talking about, you know, part amounts of parts and so forth. When you're when you're planning these processes and who you work with, did you have an idea in your head? Are you saying, we think we'd like to make, you know, in an ideal world, we'd like to make 50,000 of these a year, 200,000. Do you obviously had a plan around that because you don't want to retool all your processes if you go up, but... Um, um, you know, can I even ask, I don't know which of this you even want to talk about, but tell me, but like, you know, did you get, you know, 10,000 ice chisels made because that was the best minimum order and it dropped the cost per unit, you know, by threefold or, or how did you plan, I guess, around the potential future sales of something that did so well in the Kickstarter campaign? Uh, it's, I mean, it's basically just guessing, uh, <laughs> especially before we launched Kickstarter and we're just, uh, we're getting quotes from manufacturers. Then we, we usually ask for, you know, 1,000, 5,000 and 10,000 so we can get a sense of how the price changes. Uh, for some things it'll change significantly. And for some things it'll only budge a few cents depending on the quantity. So that just gives us a bigger, better idea of, kind of, you know, how we can be efficient in the quantities we order. Um, but then once we launch on Kickstarter, that gives us a much better idea of the quantities we should be looking at. Um, so for the Kickstarter, we had, yeah, about, like you said, 2,300 pre-orders. And so our first batch of kits was 5,000. Mm -hmm. So we could have some to sell, you know, you know, once the Kickstarter is over, and then, so that's kind of the quantities we're looking at for that. And then, so when we reorder the next batch, it'll probably be, you know, in that same range. And uh, so, so tell me, so do you have like 7,000 silicone cups sitting around or did you have to order anything in particular where you just said, all right, we're going to get like 20,000 of these? Uh, no, everything and this, it's, this seems to be true in general. I could be completely wrong, but it seems like at most industrial scales, one to 10,000 is always a decent range. Um, cool. And so, yeah, for us, we kind of ordered everything to be taken complete. So we didn't overorder anything, really. In the past, we have done that some, but in general, you know, if you're up in this scale of 1,000, 5,000, the numbers kind of work out for most processes. And so we are able to kind of you know, order complete kits, if you will, and not have any just like leftover parts sitting around. You just give me an idea for a book, which would be, uh, and, and Max Temkin of Cards Against Humanity, he, he gave me, I thought there should be a children's book about how they made stuff about scale. But as you say that, I'm thinking, oh my God, what a useful book would be to tell you on every page, it would be like a, a Powers of Ten book. It's like, okay, yeah. if you're making this many, you should do here are the processes, and then you get up to this scale and this scale and this scale without any prices, but just sort of the relative cost and efficiency, the the percentage of um, with the printing industry. I love the term; it's make ready. Make ready is all of the upfront costs, and it's even the stuff that you throw away on the press that doesn't work, but you're looking at it for quality. It's the make ready part, and uh, make ready is a, it's reduced in cost a lot over the years, but still a significant part. So you have to hit a point, you know. 500 books used to be, used to be 2000. Now it's 500 books, but where the make ready is not, you know, 50% of the cost or 75%. That would be, that would be fun to do. So for your next product, so you learn many lessons, many, many lessons <laughs> from, from this and your, your next product that's got a Kickstarter underway right now, the simple syrup kit you can find on Kickstarter. Uh, it's uh, as we talk, you're you're eighty percent of the way to the goal, and uh, just a week or so into it. So you know, clearly we'll fund, which is great. Um, so you're obviously probably deep in the figuring out next ordering stages and so forth and scale. But this is a much simpler idea um, on the face of it. However, knowing you guys and seeing the research you've done, this also is very complex. So what was your design challenge for making simple syrup? That sounds like a really easy thing to do, and it is not exactly, right? So so what did the design challenge going into make your simple syrup project simple? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, making simple syrup is uh, simple, um, but there we basically just wanted a really nice way to do it. To A, to, to make it. But B, and maybe even more importantly, to, to store it so you can use it, you know, on, it's on the ready whenever you need it for a cocktail. And so we, this is again, you know, came from the same place as the Neat Ice Kit where, you know, we were making cocktails and thinking, dang, you know, the vast majority of these cocktails contain this one ingredient. 
uh, and I either like don't have it or I have to make it, you know, like what's the deal with this? That's when we kind well, of, you can buy it, but it's ridiculous, right? Like the price is yeah. like a hundred times the, year, yeah, it's, like, the cost it's, of... it's like six bucks for a bottle that like is, yeah, it's 20 it's cents a, of sugar. It's not a good value. Right. Uh, yeah. So, um, so yeah, so we, you know, the, the first step, I think probably maybe what most people do when they start making their own simple syrup is just like use an old bottle, right? Like use an old maple syrup bottle or something and that you know that's fine if you want to do that that's fine but it's it's just not a great experience it's you know the lid gets all crusty and it's just it's uh it's not that nice so we kind of going just went down this path of like you know what it what does it mean to have like a nice bottle for this thing that you're making at home and uh you know that and then you know it, it continued down the path of like you know a, a really nice way to pour it and then how and then what about like actually making it, you know? And so that is when we got to this idea of doing, uh, I think, I forget the term, maybe like the, the cold process instead of the boiling method mm. where you can, you can, it's perfectly fine to create simple syrup at room temperature rather than having to boil the water and dissolve it that way. And so just being able to put these two ingredients in a bottle and shake it is super easy and it, it, basically removes any friction of uh, making this thing that you need for cocktails. Yeah. And, you know, for us, that's, again, always how the process works. You know, at first, we're like, why would we make a simple syrup bottle? This seems silly. Uh, but we we actually didn't approach it that way. It was mostly like simple, making simple syrup kind of really sucks. Like, how can we fix it? Um, and I, And especially in this product, there were like many times where we were like, this is not worth doing. This is silly. But once we found the right bottle and we found the right pour spout, we're like, man, this pour spout is like way better than just using the bottle or anything. And so we should really give this to people like because otherwise you cannot buy this. Like you have to buy like 10,000 of them at once, right? That is the most ridiculous thing in the world. I mean, how many Chinese restaurants do you go into and the tea spills all over the table? And you're like, yeah, no, really? You've been making these for 8,000 years. Is there really no way to solve this? (laughs) I I, I have a box of like 50 spouts here uh, and they're all crappy, real crappy. But we found this one. We're like, yes, holy grail. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's funny. It is a real kind of little frictiony process, but um, just having something delightful in your life that that just makes this step like really nice and fun, uh, you know, to us feels worth it. So that's kind of what pushed us over the edge and uh, wanted to kind of put it out there. And so, you're, are you having this bottle? This is an off the sh- uh, sounds funny off the shelf bottle. This is a bottle that you can purchase. This is not one that you have to have made for you as a specialty item. Exactly. Yes. Um, so it is a Boston round bottle. And uh, the nice thing about this product is our first time is all of the parts are off the shelf parts. Um, so we don't have to do any engineering on them, yeah. which is really great, uh, especially because, you know, like the cap and stuff has to be food safe. So there's certifications. There. There's all kinds of problems. But um, but so the, what we are doing is we are well, a we pulled them all together and we're sourcing them. So that was really a lot of the work. And then uh, we are printing on the bottle in this special way it's called uh, applied ceramic labeling and basically uh, it's a really high quality printing where uh they they kind of silk screen sort of ceramic ink on the glass and then it goes through a heating process where it uh, kind of basically forms and joins with the glass oh itself so it's like permanently on there yeah. um and so that's a nice touch but yeah in general everything is off the shelf and it's a real really nice Really nice for us to not have that bother. Well, you're also – this is the thing I wanted to – I've been emphasizing this when I've been talking about crowdfunding lately on the show and elsewhere is it crystallized for me something that I think that you guys are very well established in in understanding – uh, I mean, well, I want to say first that like this is part of a set for you. I mean, now you've got you're, you've got the ice kit and you've got this, and people can buy it together. So obviously, there's that. But what I was thinking is about crowdfunding in general is for a while I was thinking, well, this is a way to fund something, and you can maybe get paid while you do it. And now I'm like, no. Like for most Kickstarters, I think for most people, for most scales of projects, including at the level that you're doing, uh, and definitely for the magazine book, is this is a a way to raise capital. Um, to move forward without having to go to a bank with with essentially having a commitment of support in some fashion against capital. But the idea that you're going to walk away with, with a 
profit as a way to pay your own labor is probably ridiculous for most. Yeah, people. it's not true. Yeah, I mean, uh, I feel like I've I think evolved we, to that. <laughs> I, I didn't believe it for a long time. I thought there might be cases, and I'm really not seeing <laughs> even at the highest scale. Like, I mean, you read about Amanda Palmer. I mean, she gets cited a lot of the time, and I'm like, the amount of labor she put in. She put in thousands of personal hours, plus you know the many tens of thousands of hours she contracted out. I don't think she made a penny off the actual campaign. I think it was all from all the stuff the campaign created. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's really is. I, I think it's just luck. I don't think this was planned by a Kickstarter, but I think in general, you know, margins for physical goods in the world are typically around 50% for retail. So, you know, I think it just kind of works out magically that most physical things you make, the costs just work out where if you run a Kickstarter campaign and you price it kind of normally and not extravagantly, mm-hmm. then yeah, you'll have enough to produce it, cover the shipping, and maybe make a few more to kind of get you going. But that's it, right? There's no way you can make, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars because you just Unless you don't fulfill anything, right? Because it just costs that much to make stuff. And people, and people have, have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and not fulfilled things. Well, exactly. I was thinking about this. Like, you know, if you print – so in my case, I printed 1,500 copies of a book that I had essentially commitments for 1,200. And it's slowly whittling away at the 300 left because most of the demand came from this direct, you know, intense supporter group. Um, but if you did a Kickstarter and you said, we, you know, uh, in your case with Simple Syrup, you're saying we need about 1,000 to sell 1,000 to make it uh, – kits uh, to make the manufacturing costs worthwhile. But you're obviously going to make more. If you actually made only the number that you need to fill the campaign, you might make some profit. But then where are you? You don't have extra exactly. stuff. You haven't taken the advantage of scale. So if you do the scale and you spend essentially most or all the money that's raised in the crowdfunding to achieve scale, then you conceivably uh, – I bring up my friend Matt Boers, who's an editorial cartoonist. And he uh, had a you know a very modest but good uh, campaign for his first book um, almost two years ago, about two years ago. And he – Again, made zero dollars off the campaign, but he spent uh, two years selling the book at essentially free. A hundred percent of the costs were covered, and he made like another I don't know twenty thousand dollars or something, some huge amount of money uh, relative to his uh, to what the book cost and his expense by being able to sell it later. Yeah, I guess the way to think about it is a Kickstarter campaign might make a company some income, but not people. You can so, pay your employees, in other words, you're paying exactly your or. or or, you know, like say you t- take the glyph, right? The very first thing for Dan and I, you know, we had the campaign. Uh, we made basically twice as many glyphs as we need. You know, we had enough money. We spent all the Kickstarter money on making twice as many glyphs as we needed to send to backers, right? So basically what we had at the end fulfilling all the backers was a company with some inventory in stock, right? Right, right. Which basically counts as money. Yeah. So Dan and I still weren't. We were still working full-time jobs. We weren't pulling a salary or anything from the company, but we had a company with some assets all of a sudden. And so I think that's really the way to think about it is it's not necessarily about these individuals getting wealthy. It's about a business being able to exist because it has some inventory or it has some assets, right? So that's really how we think about it is, you know, we don't think, oh, Kickstarter campaign, paycheck, great. It's no okay, now we have some more assets or some inventory that we can sell via the company, where usually what happens when we sell that inventory is we have more capital, so we make another product, right? So that's really the whole point here is not for Dan and I to personally make money, but for the company to be able to exist, right, and have some assets under its belt. That is fantastic. I think that's a great way to to think about it because you're capitalizing your company with your labor, but the money that allows you to create the goods is coming from people who support you. So you don't have to capitalize it with both labor and money. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, you know, and and it was funny why this seems so like prescient of Kickstarter (laughs) is like, it's called Kickstarter, right? Like that's exactly describing that process. They always thought it, but it took me this long really to totally, I really embraced that not long ago. It's not like I was telling people, yeah, you know, if you raise 40 grand, you can pay yourself 10 of that after, and then you'll pay tax on that and the rest will go to expenses. It was more like, well, in the right case, in the right circumstance, it's like, and I think it's like, no, I think I want to tell people you actually cannot pay your own labor. You can pay all your contractors. You can have co, you can have employees. You can pay other people, but you're very likely to not walk away with anything but inventory or an electronic item you can sell indefinitely. And that, which is awesome. Yeah. Which is like so super awesome. The one, <laughs> now, the one exception is uh, Henry Smith, who's the guy behind Space Team, and he explicitly ran a Kickstarter that, 
the idea was it was going to fund a year of his development, his time, and he was going to give people stuff, and he was making electronic goods and some physical stuff. And that's like – but that was like the most specific thing. It's like I want to make cool stuff. You can fund me and you can be a beneficiary of it as well as getting some extra cool stuff as being a backer. And he, he went through two campaigns. I talked to him during the first. It didn't quite fund. It was so close. And the second, he rejiggered a few things, got a little more promotional stuff going, and he totally made it work. It was great. It was uh, yeah. very well the second time. The second time, I think he focused more on having some good experiences running simultaneous with the campaigns. So he was able to market it as it went along. But that's ah. one of the few cases in which I think you're saying, I'm funding a person to do good things. And some of the radio shows, like uh, Roman Mars is 99% Invisible, some of his salary comes out of the Kickstarter money they raise. They're creating an experience. But I think those are relatively few compared to the cap- raising capital to do a thing, even to put on a show, a play, a dance. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, people can find the uh, neat ice kit because it's for sale now, right? It's for sale to the general public. It is, it is yes. on our brand new website. Yeah, so we not only with all this launching stuff, we completely redesigned our website, and now it's all responsive and fancy. So, yeah, if you go, <laughs> studioneat.com, it's for sale and. It's excellent. Check and it then out. the and the people, because the Kickstarter campaign, as we record this, has got a few more weeks uh, in it. You can also go and order, uh, you know, sort of, I want to say, I want to say pre-order. Those words are, uh, well, Kickstarter's changes terms. So it is sort of, pre- this is sort of more like a pre-order because yeah. something that's going to be made. Uh, if you trust us. Yes, yeah. you trust you guys. Oh, yeah. I don't trust you guys. You've only fulfilled <laughs> 17 things. Uh, simple syrup, simple syrup kit at Kickstarter. Dan and Tom, pleasure as always to talk to you. Thanks for coming and sharing your hard-won wisdom. Huh, thanks a lot. Thanks, Glenn. You can now support the production of this podcast directly at patreon.com slash newdisruptors. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash newdisruptors. Support us at a level that starts at $1 per month. At higher levels, you can get our thanks on the air, t-shirts, and more. You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com. And our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening. 